I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey everyone, it's Raghu, and I am back with some new friends. I mean, we have so many people in common, it's not funny. And um, But th- they put a book together called How to Not Be a Hot Mess. And uh, as many of you know, on the Mind Rolling podcast, I'm complaining about being a hot mess sometimes, <laughs> dealing with anger, you know, after decades of this stuff, right? So I thought, well... This will be a fun conversation. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. here we are. And uh, by the way, so I, I opened the book up and who do I see? Right. At, I mean, maybe it was the second page, but Joseph Goldstein. Mm-hmm. We are then we are in the Joseph Goldstein fan club students. Ramdas was in that club. OK, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. that's the way he felt about Joseph. Um, and of course, Sharon and Jack. They're like the most incredible triumvirate that we have bringing, <laughs> you know, Buddhism back to the West in a way that nobody else has. Mm-hmm. And then Mingyur, Mingyur Rinpoche. Yeah. I actually got a chance to, to do a podcast with him uh, hey. last year with, uh, with my friend Krishna Das. I'm not sure. You, I think yeah. you remember yeah, Krishna Das. Awesome. Oh, he was in Nepal and he was in Kathmandu and it was like this, it was, this signal was as good as it is with us right now. It was incredible, yeah. the broadband and all that. Uh, uh, he's a very special being. So are his brothers so, and his mm-hmm. father, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what to say. I mean, how do you get a family like that? You know? <laughs> For real. How do you get into it? There's something we do called the Hanuman Chalisa that we brought back from India from Mm -hmm. our days there. And in one of the stanzas of Chile, 40 verses, so one of the verses is just keep repeating the name so you will have a chance to get born into a family of devotees or Sangha, basically. Mm -hmm. So, um, So I'm, I'm... I, I need to hear, if you don't mind, and there's a little bit of it in the book, a little bit about your your history. And I always ask people that I've never met before, what what was it that was the trigger that, oh, wait a minute, Th- these thoughts, I mean, my my famous story is uh, uh, Adyashanti, who, uh, when I talked to him, he said, or it's in his book, one of his books, yeah, I was always wondering, I was a little kid, like, yeah. what is wrong 
these people are mm. going crazy all the time. Well, these mm. adults, it's nuts. And then I got a little bit older, and it's, one day he had a dawning, like at nine or ten years old or something, and he said, oh, I know what it is. They actually believe their thoughts, you know. <laughs> and, uh, it, yeah, so triggers in terms of what it is that was the big wake-up call that there is a path to freedom, yeah. shall we say, in the most general way, huh? Yeah. I could go, I could go first. first, So I think for me, um, I was a teenager, you know, I, I was in a situation surrounded by adults going crazy, just like you said, like Adi Ashanti said, a lot of, a lot of alcohol abuse, drug abuse in my family, uh, a lot of, a lot of fighting and, and, and difficulty and tumult, and I remember actually there was this one moment that has come to kind of encapsulate the feeling that I had in the beginning of my spiritual path, which was that I was 16 years old, playing rock music, you know, smoking weed and hanging out with my friends. But I, I got a car. <laughs> which is like a really big deal for me. It was like this beautiful three-door hatch, you know, no, it was like two-door hatchback Hyundai, baby blue stick shift. I remember it very vividly because it was so important for me mm. because I could get out of my house. And one day I drove it down to the river. I was living near the Hudson River um, in Westchester. Oh, that's where you're from. And I was... That's where I'm from. I was born in Manhattan, grew mm. up in rural Connecticut in Westchester and divorced parents. And I was sitting next to the river at sunset. And it, there's this red light rippling on the Hudson River and these swallows diving all around. And I thought to myself, um, this is beautiful but not for me. I knew it was beautiful, but it didn't touch me. And there was this feeling I had of like a plexiglass between me and the world. And I was somehow frozen while the beauty of the world presenced all around me. And I I had this thought of there has to be some, some other way of living where I'm touched by this. And it was very shortly after that, that actually a book by Joseph Goldstein dropped (laughs) in my lap called Insight Meditation. And Mm. I I read it um, and to me, it felt like the answer to every question. You know, there's dukkha, right? There's this difficulty or this underlying sense of dissatisfaction and there's a path. And so for, it went from there. Like I started trying to meditate and it was very difficult. And I met a teacher who was a Vipassana teacher. And then one, two, three, pretty much I was obsessed from day one. <laughs> you know, I talk about all the different ways this kind of a thing happens from a psychedelic to a teacher, to a book, to a piece of music. For me, this is my crazy story that I, I've told a billion times. Sorry out there. But uh being a kid and happened to get into, I was into jazz and I got into a, a club at 16. I don't know how I did it. Uh, with uh, John Coltrane was playing and, uh, he played my favorite things on a soprano sax. And I literally went out of my body and I then realized, and this is before I took any psychedelics or anything. I don't even know if, I don't think I was smoking weed or anything. Mm. So it was, that was a big propelling thing. And, of course, music in my life has been extremely important and transform, transformational. But, uh, but here you are sitting on a river with a thought. Just a thought did that. Right? Mm-hmm. Karma is incredible that, you know, when it unfolds, just incredible. Mm-hmm. And you, Debbie? Yeah, yeah. So my uh, young adulthood was a little different than Craig's, although I got interested about the same age. So I grew up in a small town in Oregon, and I was an only child, had really loving parents. My dad actually worked with Carl Rogers as a psychotherapist, 
And so I had a really wholesome upbringing, um, but was really victim to a lot of the dominant culture narrative around perfectionism and succeeding in school and looking beautiful and all of the things that white women, those messages that we get at a young age. So I remember actually being quite young and my dad and I had a good relationship. He was older when I was born, but, and he also was kind of the stay at home parent. So we would go out in the summertime to pick cherries together at the orchard. And he, uh, I remember we were on a ladder in a tree picking cherries and he told me, you know, it's very important to meditate. Really? Wow. Meditation can help you. Jeez, and his father had done that. Done. <laughs> I know, right? Well, his meditation instructions were kind of interesting because he said, what you do is you imagine that your mind is an empty room and there's nothing in it. You take out all the furniture and you just sit in this empty room. And I remember trying to do that as a young kid. I was really looking, you know, I didn't actually love the messages I was getting from the culture about how happiness was found through success and straight A's and all the things. Even though I was really bought in to performance, I was always looking at like, okay, is it meditation? What, how do I find what's really happening here? You know, I spent a while praying to God and not really hearing much and not really understanding like what is really, there must be more than this. And so I was a freshman in college and really hit a kind of rock bottom with over-exercise, under-eating, a lot of anxiety, really over-committed. And um, at Christmas break, I was home and kind of had a meltdown. And my mom, both really good parents, she gave me a book by Pema Chodron. Mm. Gee, okay, you guys, forget about it. I know. <laughs> so I was that. 19. <laughs> I read uh, Hard Advice for Difficult Times. It's yeah. when things fall apart. Hard Advice for Difficult mm-hmm. Times by Pima Children. No, and it's no. wisdom just rang clear, so clear. You know, she described us being on this hamster wheel of always trying to get something better and be better. And once I have the perfect relationship or the perfect body or the perfect job or the perfect life, then I can finally rest. And I could see how I would do that my whole life. I could just do stay on that hamster wheel my whole life. Mm. So that I think was the wisdom I was looking for. And she said I should meditate, which was exactly what my dad had said and what I've been trying to do. So really from the get-go then as a young person, I really wanted to put it at the center of my life. Mm. Boy, oh boy. Uh, Just as an anecdote, anecdote. I, I react to wish my father had told me to meditate it. 16 or whatever but what happened to me uh, is that when I went to India and met Neem Karoli Baba Mm -hmm. he told me to give my father asses (laughs) whoa you didn't give him the Ramdas yogi medicine because Ramdas had given him acid nothing happened you know all that famous story (laughs) so my father flipped out and then he actually acquiesced and did it and then talk about an entire shift of my whole family structure happened because wow. he was a despotic tyrant who came to India for God knows what reason, you know. Wow. Except he loved us. He did love us. Mm. But he was World War II pilot. It was a complete, oh, God, an angry, angry man, you know. And uh, mm. and this, basically, my, my family was saved by, by him telling him to take acid because and he had a complete death trip. Really, I mean, mm. he died, uh, mm. and we were in Benares, which I don't know if you've mm-hmm. ever been to India, but it's a place yeah. where people go to die for thousands of years, and mm-hmm. that's all that was going on: death, people mm. uh, running over. I mean, bodies in front of us that were waiting for more money yeah. to put more wood to be able to burn them properly. All. So it was a little bit of a reversal thing, and uh, but it had the same effect. My entire family. Uh, met Neem Karoli Baba, so it's a mm. pretty graceful thing. And you guys had the same thing in a different way that's mm-hmm. uh, just phenomenal. So in the book, of course, the core that has to be how to, how to not be a hot mess <laughs> <laughs> is mindfulness. And, you know, you talk a lot about it. Um, I have to tell you, the, the other day, uh, was it last week, maybe Sharon did, Sharon Salzberg did a, a, 
uh, a talk on behalf of our Ramdas Fellowship thing, which is uh, to get people together to be able to be in community now, of course, all online. But there's a lot of people. And she said, I have a new definition for mindfulness. And I'm like waiting. I wonder what she can be talking about now. And she goes, yeah, mindfulness is not smacking anybody in the mouth. Right. Such and you talk about, you know, isn't that great? Mm-hmm. I mean, from her who was so eloquent, who could say, you know. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> she, um, and, it, you know, you talk about it in the book. You do talk mm-hmm. about the, that pause moment, mm-hmm. which is what she's talking about. Right. And that can only come about with real awareness through mindfulness and, and so on. Um, uh, just, uh, yeah, talk a little bit about how you're characterizing it. I do love it, both of you. I do love how you're characterizing the teaching, as Joseph said in his little testimonial. So, yeah, just talk about that a little bit because I think it's helpful, your point of view. Yeah, I think what we say in the book is we love, uh, we love mindfulness and we teach mindfulness and we have taught mindfulness quite a bit, especially... To younger folks, you know, Devin and I um, taught, Devin taught in community college, she taught in high school. Um, I taught a psychology of mindfulness class at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, also as a therapist teaching mindfulness in prisons and in um, inpatient psychiatry units and pretty heavy duty places. Mm. What we recognized was that mindfulness, the sense of coming back, re-inhabiting the body, is a super big win for people. And maybe in particular, people at this historical moment who are overcharged with crazy amounts of information and stimulation and this kind of blizzard of um, just the wild, wild world. And you can throw fear in there. big time. And fear, especially younger people. You know, when we were talking to undergraduates, we were both struck by how intensely anxious Mm. younger people are. Mm. Huge number of reasons for that. But what we found out was as we were teaching mindfulness to all of these different people, and in particular, younger people, we realized mindfulness alone is not enough. Right. I'm I'm very appreciative of you on that. Yeah. And this was a really, it was a, it came to us as a, as a kind of insight. You know, we were coming from this background of Buddhism. And when the Buddha taught mindfulness, he always taught it in tandem with this host of principles and, and techniques and, and ways of being. And so when we were in these secular environments, we started out doing it more like mindfulness straight, like MBSR. But what we found was that the kinds of things that came up in these really intimate conversations that we would have with groups of people, we needed to explore together, like, what are you really about? What matters to you? And so then we began to think, well, how do we explore those questions in a Dharma context, a traditional Buddhist context? We explore those questions through what are called the precepts these kind of guidelines for living. And that's how we ended up writing this book because we say mindfulness alone is not enough. And then we introduce these kind of five ways of being in the world really as points of dialogue. Like we don't want to just prescriptively tell people who to be, what to be, but it's good to have a kind of framework for exploration to find out for yourself what matters. Yeah. And of course, number one, which is my favorite thing that I say all the time, not maybe I didn't, not as pointed. I love how pointed <laughs> this is. And don't be a jerk. <laughs> you know, I mean, Krishnas and I talk about this a lot in terms of, you know, people on the spiritual path, you know, they have certain expectations about going into states of deeper meditative absorptions and jhanas sure. and all that. Mm-hmm. And we say, yeah, uh, forget about that shit. Just mm-hmm. and in your turn, you know, just be a good human. You know, mm-hmm. this is what it's all about. It's not about 
indulging in your states of meditative absorption. If they come, of course, God bless, you know, no, mm-hmm. but uh, that's why I love it. Yeah, don't be a jerk. Shall I say them? Give a little, say what's yeah. true, make sex good. Of course, many people will put that as number one, but <laughs> uh, stay clear. So um, I, I, you talk about it uh, shortly thereafter, but uh, I'll tell this little tidbit about uh, another thing from Sharon is talk about practical right I mean she's I've been close to these guys you know for an awful awful long time Mm -hmm. and it's so fresh every moment that we communicate you know Um, but one day I was um, we were doing a retreat in Maui when Ramdas was with still with us and Mm -hmm. uh, Sharon was there and I did a podcast used to do a kind of, we call it a live podcast with my friend Duncan Trussell. I'm not sure if you know who Duncan is, but a mm-hmm. fun person to know, a comedian. And uh, he just looked at Sharon. He went, Sharon, like, what do you do in terms of practice? And she said, I get up, I sit on my seat, and, and I get real, Duncan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... To me, that's probably the number one prescription for us all is, is to really practice that. Now, of course, what's the methodology behind all of that is, is super important. But um, um, I think who uh, you had, the, oh, it's uh, Pema. Yeah, talk about how that related for you uh, regarding that was uh, an awakening with Pema. Definitely. I mean, such common sense. A lot of it is really about being real and honest. And we say this in the book, you know, we say meditation is wonderful. We love it. And yet the Buddha never said, just sit down and look at your breath. He said, sit down, look at your, feel your breath and then look at your life. You know, feel the breath as a way of getting clear but then really important to look at how you're living. Mm -hmm. How are you talking to yourself? How are you talking to others? How are you putting your values into practice? Yeah. And I think we see this a lot. Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche was a genius at uh, naming spiritual materialism. And now we have a lot of spiritual bypassing going on. Mm -hmm. I think it's very easy to actually think that we're living in alignment with our values when actually we're in kind of a state of delusion a lot about Mm -hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And so this getting real, I love that that's Sharon's advice <laughs> and her practice. You know, this is a lot about what we're seeing in this book is like, know who you are. You know, these are actually guidelines for being authentic. Mm-hmm. And we're talking a lot about authenticity these days, because I think there's these tools that we have that are really about sitting down, orienting, and how do we actually get real? We're not really trained to do that in the culture. And so we have these tools like mindfulness of the breath, like considering what generosity might feel like, like really looking at what it feels like to be a jerk (laughs) or what it feels like to actually be kind. And with that clarity that's built through mindfulness, we get to, I think, experience a more authentic experience of who we really are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll throw in this little thing that, of course, Jack, always met jack cornfield always met we have these three people in it it's uh, that are when you start talking each one of them has this incredible offering huh? but jack always says because a lot of people will hear this kind of a conversation and oh yeah fuck, am i a jerk i did that you know and there, <laughs> there's so much self-recrimination and judgment and shame you know all of it mm-hmm. so i love what he his retort to that with people is hey, we're human. It's okay. Mm, yeah. He goes into the whole thing. Did you ever see we're putting stuff into our, this kind of weird right. stuff into our mouth? Right. You know, he goes through this and whole... And then it's coming out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, everybody, we are all uh, a work in progress. I mean all of us, uh, mm-hmm. including these three teachers that we're talking about, including Ramdas, although he was mm-hmm. very advanced. He did get to a place where... Love everyone was real for him and uh, tell the truth, which is a whole other part of uh, this book that's important. 
Um, but let me just say also, because uh, there's a couple of things I, I love here I wouldn't mind reading about. The power of meditation is not that all things cease and desist. Again, this projection of what mm-hmm. we think should happen right. is very, very, makes can make things difficult, right? Um, it, and, and this is my own experience over many years of, of practice and all. It's, it's simply we get really good at letting our experience be exactly it is, as it is moment by moment, no matter what it is, with warmth and friendli- friendliness and, and maybe even some steady sense of presence. And mm-hmm. um, that, that's a, a super important thing. And, and, and as Sharon talks about over and over, always remember, you get lost, you can come back. Mm-hmm. You can come back no matter what. Right. Right. So, um, um, let's talk a little bit about some of what's going on today, and and in the book, it's it's this book was written must have been finished last year, right? Something mm-hmm. like that, yeah. and handed in, yeah, to Shambhala. Well. There's stuff in this book that accurately reflects what's going on since George, <laughs> George Floyd got murdered, right? Oh, so, yeah, that too. Uh, yeah, uh, and, I, and you talk about, you do talk about this quite often. You know, mindfulness, it, there's a whole thing. It's uh, Mindfulness can dismantle white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Talk about that because that's, uh, you know, super important. I know Spirit Rock is uh, a so wonderful at integrating people of color into mm. the practice, into uh, the, the Sangha. And in fact, Jack has been advising me as the uh, executive director of Love Serve Remember Foundation is my other hat. And uh, he's been helping a lot. Uh, and I've met so many wonderful people through him. Some of them, you know, like, um, right off the bat, Conda Mason, who's going mm-hmm. to be doing a podcast on Be Here Now Network, actually. She's an incredible, incredible person. Great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, talk about this. I think it's an important... Uh, I, I don't think you envisioned what how important it was going to be, but mm. maybe you did, you know. Yeah. Yeah, this has been something that has been central for Devin and for, you know, just to say, since people can't see us, we're white. You know, we're white, heterosexual, cisgender. They married. are going to see you, by the way. Really? <laughs> yes, on YouTube. Those who choose to. Hello, YouTube Wonderful. people. Hello. Cheers. <laughs> so, you know, we're we're racialized white in this culture, and the two of us, I think, had a little bit of an awakening experience around race, maybe. In 2011, 2012, there was just being more exposed to what was going on in the the wider nation, the country around race through my own work as a a psychotherapist, working with um, folks that had been historically marginalized, that is black and POC folks, but, you know, also people with differing gender identities or sexual identities, just this recognition of speaking for myself, my own inherited and mostly unconscious privilege. And then the dual recognition of how these dynamics of what I would even think of as oppression were running straight through our Buddhist communities unconsciously. And so that led me, I mean, Devin was actually one of my biggest inspirations. She was studying with Larry Yang and Gina Sharp and other teachers of color and kind of informing my views on this. I ended up writing my dissertation on the experiences of people of color in primarily white meditation communities. Mm. And, you know, it's complex, the dissertation, there's all these different themes. But if I were to sum it, sum it up, I would say white people in Buddhist communities and meditation communities behave very much like white people in other majority white situations. That is, they are instituting exclusionary practices almost continuously without even knowing that that is what they're doing. 
Can and you there, can you just name uh, that out? Kind of um, mm, protecting the white space, the cultural white space, in terms of how you speak, how you sit, how you walk, how you dress, what what kind of scents you wear or don't wear on your body. Uh, where the meditation centers are located, et cetera, et cetera. I go into all these details. Maybe we can put that in the show notes, this link to the dissertation. But it was a real wake-up call. Please, please, please. That would be fabulous, Greg. Yeah. Um, it was a real wake-up call for me. And then through that work, we became um, very active in Buddhist communities to deconstruct some of these sort of white supremacist underlying currents and dynamics and so we've been doing that now for quite a long time Mm. yeah it was really actually a powerful piece to write this we have like a sidebar in the book that Mm -hmm. says mindfulness dismantles white supremacy and really tracing the waking up process that we both had which happened for me about a decade ago so this was when i was in a community dharma leadership program with larry and gina And it was explicitly for empowering a diverse population of Dharma teachers. So our group of 100 people had a high percentage of POC folks, a high percentage of queer folks, people of all ages, different backgrounds. And I came in as a pretty innocent 30-year-old. I had just been living out in the mountains in a retreat center. I was very committed to the Dharma, but didn't even know I was white. Like, I had no idea that there was such a thing as white culture and that I just had been so privileged and really, um, you know, growing up in a pretty homogenous white town, I just hadn't been exposed to these really deep truths that are actually running through our lives. And I think in some ways, we, both of us are pretty typical in terms of living for decades before really understanding what is happening in our, in our culture around power and race and oppression and dominance. And so I still feel like I'm very much in the process of learning about these dynamics and then how to use my social location to dismantle them. But it felt great in a book about meditation to write about this because meditation is such a useful tool. Yes for understanding our minds and understanding these biases that are so unconscious and so buried, but we can use our intention and our mindfulness to start to unearth some of these. Mm -hmm. Not an easy process, certainly painful, but right now in particular, it feels just of the essence, just so essential that we all do this. But I think in Dharma communities, we have the tools to really start to set the example for how this work can be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, um, it can be difficult, most especially for people who are on the path, whatever path, whichever path they might be on, mm-hmm. because of that old bypass thing. Yes. Right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we've been talking about this a lot in the last months, and I've been talking to different people on podcasts and so on. Mm-hmm. And, again, got to go back to what we were just talking about it is not about putting guilt on yourself. That is useless, completely mm-hmm. useless. Yes, awareness of motivation, awareness of the deeper structures, in this case around race, uh, is supremely important. But it doesn't come with the guilt thing. That's why I want to talk about this a little later because uh, you talk about kindness and kindness meditation. That's why Ram Dass's loving awareness meditation it's really a, not just a meditation, but it's a reorienting perspective that allows for uh, non-judgmental witnessing, basically. Yeah. So we have to be careful about that because you just get overwhelmed with, uh, with shame, with regret, with guilt yeah. around. And, and this I has all come out, I mean, uh, that... George Floyd, mm-hmm. who is being used by the universe in this way, is pretty extraordinary, actually. And uh, in terms of the wake-up that is happening, right. we just we need to, all of us that are doing this kind of work, we need to keep it going, in my mind. It's yeah. easy to forget. And yeah. uh, so as much as we, I mean, the conversations that we're having are supremely important 
to right. uh, I think I just point. like uh, I'm going to piggyback on that. I think this mm. is a really important point around guilt and shame. I almost wonder if that is an inevitable part of the developmental process as a white person who begins to confront these systems that have in many ways benefited let's say me you know the way that the way that I have been kind of floated my entire life due just to the pigmentation of my skin unconsciously benefiting from this and then that that moment or those moments where I really interrogate that and see it and feel it I almost wonder if shame has to be part of the process mm. for that phase when you're first recognizing it. And then that is why I believe mindfulness is so essential mm. to the process. That's why mindfulness can deconstruct white supremacy is because mindfulness allows us to hold these incredibly painful feelings in a way that they become galvanizing instead of defensive or self-destructive. And I'll just speak from my own experience. It's easy to get defensive, right? It's easy if you feel shame or you feel guilt, um, a natural response to that is defensiveness, especially in conversation, if you're being challenged, if you're being pushed, which we all need to be on this issue. Mindfulness is so powerful because it allows me to take care of this organism through that intensity of experience mm. and hopefully not uh, <laughs> not be a jerk <laughs> while, while it's all happening. That's our mantra for today. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that's right. You know, talking about shame, I'll just share a little story. I... I just the other day, did a podcast with a friend of mine. He's a shaman in the Sangoma tradition in South Africa, John Lockley. Mm. And we were talking about this all because, you know, right there is the, the colonization process. And we were talking about colonization of the mind mm -hmm. in tandem with this. It was a really interesting conversation. He was um, brought into that tradition, the only white man that mm. was allowed and brought in. And the tradition is very much centered around dream yoga. Cool. Basically, they don't call it that, but uh, certainly around dreams. So, yeah, it's mm -hmm. amazing. Not around ayahuasca or, mm -hmm. or uh, ethnogens. So mm -hmm. uh, at one point, he just felt the great weight of racism and being a white guy in this milieu. So he mm -hmm. went to his teacher and said, uh, asked her, can I speak to the community about my feelings of shame? And they said, sure. And he stood up and he just went on for some time about how he was brought up within. And, and his parents actually weren't, um, were, were far more liberal than, than what might have been expected in, in, in that kind of a situation. But he just expressed it all. He was just crying. Uh, to mm -hmm. these people, but he said that enabled him to get through and transform it by by virtue of of, of they gave him that boon to mm -hmm. do that. We kind don't of have much of a chance to do that in this culture. Yeah. But actually, he made some good, you know, some pretty good suggestions about how to mm -hmm. start. And he said, "Doing," you know, he said to me, "Look, doing what you're doing right now is a start. Just mm -hmm. talking to different people." keeping the discussion going, being honest. So, mm -hmm. which leads us to the next really important point is honesty. The, the, and I, I say this a billion times, the reason I was so attracted to Ram Dass when I was a kid and uh, you know, all of this was dawning on me and I, actually, I met him and that's how I got to India. W one of the primary things was, a, was honesty. He was so mm. honest about his... Mm faults and his uh, tripping up left and right, told it all. And uh, I had a trust that I never had before, um, certainly in my with parents and, and all of that. And so, yeah, honesty is, 
is our best policy here. So when <laughs> you talk about truth and honesty and so on, why don't you uh, elaborate from your point of view? Yeah, this is, I think, a really important piece of practice. That so often we think about meditation as a solitary act with our eyes closed, sitting on a cushion. But more and more, I think, especially during our times, really bringing mindfulness to the way we're using words. So important because of all of these guidelines, I think we spend the most time talking, right? <laughs> we certainly are not having as much sex as we're spending time talking. <laughs> so it's a powerful tool. You know, I think the Buddha said that language, words, speech is like having, we have an ax in our mouth. And if you think about ax as a tool, it builds things. It's a very important tool to build, but it can also destroy and harm and that, I think, really is the power of honesty and clear speaking, wise speech. So in this chapter, we really, Craig, Craig talks about all the ways that he used to be um, like boldly authentic and experimenting with all kinds of edgy speech. Yeah, and then learning would, yeah there's how some to, great stuff in there. Uh, he's got some good hell. stories. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like way too honest kind of. Exactly, exactly. And his mom had to tell him, like, sometimes it's nice to just lie, even out of kindness, by omission. But, But what we're talking about here is a really wise kind of discernment. You know, how are our words coming out? How are they going to be heard? What kind of impact are they having? And so we can ask ourselves these four questions before we speak. This is also a mindfulness practice because pausing and slowing down is so important. But so first of all, is what I'm about to say true? Is it actually really truly true? And we talk about also in our culture how the example from our leaders is really about how lying is okay, totally okay. And so we felt pretty fiery about reversing that narrative and emphasizing how important it is to really be true. Mm. So is it true? Second question, is it timely? Mm -hmm. Is this actually the right time for me to say this? Will it be heard? Will it really land? So is it timely? Third question, is it useful? Is this actually really going to help in some way? Is it necessary? Is it useful? And then the fourth one, is it kind? And this is a tricky one because kindness has this connotation of like soft and syrupy and pretty sweet. But we have these examples of how kindness can be very fierce, actually. You know, like when we're speaking truth to power, that's a very deep kind of, of kindness, actually. So these really, these questions demand a deep sense of presence, a deep sense of knowing our intentions, and a deep commitment to integrity. Mm-hmm. You know, I think integrity is a word that we're not really seeing in the collective culture right now so much. And so how do we sort of recenter our own lives, our own values and speech, around integrity and truth. Mm -hmm. And why? I think that's another important point. Mm. And the the reason is just very simple. When we live in our own integrity, in alignment with our own values, and speak in alignment with our values, we'll have more well-being. We'll have better friendships. We'll have a better family life. We'll have a better work life. All around, we will be more vital and happier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I have been working on something with a friend of mine, uh, and it's around, it's basically addressing the movie of me, which my friend Krishnadas came up with, and he's talked a lot about it. You're the you wake up in the morning. You're the producer, director, writer, lead actor, supporting actor, twenty four seven. This is going on, mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so there's no way on earth that that can be transformed without knowing the mind, without seeing the motivations, mm-hmm. seeing the recriminations, seeing mm-hmm. the belief in the thoughts, 
seeing yeah. the, the habitual patterns, seeing the neurotic tendencies. So we go into it and you know, we share all of ours to, to give people an idea. You're all okay. We're all in this together, mm-hmm. which is obviously mm-hmm. extremely important. And you do talk about Sangha in the book as well mm-hmm. and how important it is to friends on the path. But uh, there's a trap there. Maybe you can address this. And the trap is it's, it's part of spiritual bypass, using mindfulness. I am being mindful now. I know that I want to rip that guy's head off for what mm-hmm. he did to demean me. And mm-hmm. therefore, I am not going to do it. It's still, Sharon would say, you're still smacking him in the face. Uh-huh. So, yeah, talk about uh, the, to me, misuse of mindfulness, basically, mm-hmm. in, in relation to under, knowing yourself and, and being able to cut that thing of the movie of me. Yeah. I think the way that I might talk about this, just from my own, my own practice right now, I was talking to a friend the other day, old friend. We lived in the monastery together for years. And uh, he's an, he's actually an editor at Shambhala now. And, you know, Devin and I are doing this funny Dharma teacher thing. And so we were talking, like, um, and I was asking him, you know, what are you interested in in practice right now? And he told me a little bit about what he's interested in. And then he asked me, what are you interested in? And for me... It's this sense of, my teacher the other day said, the live wire of authenticity. So to me, um, it's not that the mindfulness practice or the meditation practice somehow makes me more polished or somehow makes me look a particular way to the outside world. Um, It's not that I'm even particularly interested in improving It's like this body, heart, mind is so alive. And the more authentic my practice is, the more that I'm meeting this moment of just like the energetic fireworks that are going off in my body, my heart, my mind, I feel incredibly alive. And I have faith, actually, this um, article of faith that if I can really stay with this the way it in fact is, it will naturally turn toward goodness. Mm. That, is my, that is my faith. And that is over now 25 years, my experience. And so less and less as I go along in the path, am I interested in squeezing something off in order to try to be somebody better? And more and more, I am really, I'm really kind of delighted by the full experience, whether that is anger or joy or (laughs) some moment of ridiculous greediness, (laughs) you know, small-mindedness. More and more, I find this enriching, enlivening, it's just like so much heat and stuff. I, I don't even know how to describe it. That to me is the live wire of authenticity. Now that doesn't mean that I act out every impulse that comes along because that would be disastrous <laughs> and unwise. No, you're, you're good. For me, it would be disastrous. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh no. I can tell you. <laughs> Nobody wants me to act on every impulse that comes through my mind. <laughs> Certainly not Devin. Okay, I get that. <laughs> <laughs> but to know, like you were saying, to know every impulse, every, every heart moment, and to just know it so fully that it kind of, it's, like it's like a weather pat- pattern moving through. That is what's fun. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and you have in here uh, one of the when Sharon says mindfulness is not smacking anyone in the mouth, and you put it in the book is this little thing from His Holiness uh, called the ethic of restraint. Yes, that's what 
Sharon is talking about. That's right. And uh, the pause. <laughs> don't hit that send button. You know, I mean, we have this a lot you know, going yeah. on in, in, in every yeah. which way, especially today with so I'll much pressure. I'll just tell you, since I stopped sending angry emails <laughs> maybe 10 years ago, my life has gotten so much easier, <laughs> much less mess to clean yeah. up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I got that one when all of this became very self-evident and you have this right in front of you, thank God. You know, people say, well, what is it that, uh, that you've, how have you changed? You've been doing all this work, practice spiritual stuff for all these decades and all. And it's, it's, you very much say it in the book. There's a lot more spaciousness. So I am not reacting the way that I reacted uh, when I was younger. Mm-hmm. It happens, everybody. Yeah. It does happen. And, and then there's also, uh, as you say, friendliness, I love that word, towards the bullshit that is going on. And the, yes. the re- especially the reactivity. That's why the, the ethic of, of restraint. And, and there's a little bit of discipline involved there. You know, and I'm an old hippie, right? That uh, didn't want to hear about that, and uh, it took it took some time to understand that was the path to freedom. Not thinking I was free mm-hmm. is the path to freedom. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you, there's a wonderful thing in, that you talk about kindness, and we we mentioned before. And, uh, oh, I love this thing. We talked about the, uh, I think you made an, what you called an ill-informed generalization about the difference between Asian and Western Buddhist teacher. What, what was it, by the way? What <laughs> was that? Was me. What did you say? <laughs> that, that the one is better than the other? I, what did you say? No, not that bad. Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, then I'm going to tell you. So go ahead. Tell me what. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I, I've maybe partially blocked it out what exactly <laughs> I said, but it was, you know, I think that Asian teachers do this stuff better. And I think that um, Western teachers maybe are better at this thing and that mm, thing. Uh-huh, and, I see. Uh, it was those kinds of wide sweeping generalizations. Mm-hmm. I'll give you something that, Beats the hell. See, I told you I can beat you in kind of wicked dark All right, thoughts. Let's hear it. <laughs> I was I was just hanging out with Tammy Simon, you know, uh, who has own uh, sounds true, uh, old old friend, and we've done business together when I had a record company and all that, and we do it now. She's publishing Ram Dass's memoir in January, mm. coming out, which is pretty amazing. So um, great. We were talking about teachers. She was talking to me about Adyashanti, who I only knew of, had not met or had any mm-hmm. interaction with, and, and telling me how he had a, you know, an, an awakening experience and he was an awake person. And she might have mm-hmm. characterized it in a couple of different ways, which I, I don't even remember. <laughs> I think I said something. What do you mean? I mean, compared to, you know, I might have named off, you know, Ramana Maharshi or something, because it's certainly that non-dual tradition. And she goes, she looks at me and goes, what are you, some kind of racist uh, uh, Dharma teacher land that you're in? What are you talking about? <laughs> so we had this whole yeah. thing. It was really, and that is a truism. On the other hand, I got to tell you, there's a lot of these beings, a lot more that are over there than are here. <laughs> Got to mm-hmm. tell so you, far. you know mm-hmm. why? Because they've been nurturing that thing for thousands of years, and what we are, mm-hmm. you know, we're just getting going here. But mm-hmm. uh, that was a funny thing. And then, um, I uh, so kindness, kindness, mm-hmm. kindness. Why did you leave out the loving out of kindness? Mm. You know, I think Sharon even says this, that sometimes loving kindness feels like a cumbersome translation of metta. 
because in Western culture, there's so many different connotations about what kind of love are we talking about? Are we talking about agape? Or are we talking about eros? Loving kindness? It's, it's not in our common parlance. And so sometimes it just takes a little while to explain that quality of, I think friendliness actually is a better translation of this word metta or this feeling of just connection and welcoming with everything, everyone. So I don't know that we didn't really talk explicitly about this decision to leave off loving and just talk about kindness, like kindness meditation. But I think maybe intuitively there was a sense that loving kindness is a little bit of a cumbersome phrase. And then in some ways in, because so much of what we tried to do is make this very colloquial, very accessible for everyone to just, we sort of know this word kindness, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's mm -hmm. what we were trying to do is just really be approachable in what mm -hmm. we're trying to point yeah. to in terms absolutely. of this friendliness. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Exactly. And, you know, Sharon and one, we were doing something together and uh, talking about love. She said, yeah, actually, it was cultivating loving awareness, this thing that we did in Maui with Ram Dass. And she was talking about love. Yeah, people think, think you're weak. Think it's yeah. a weak thing. Mm -hmm. Right. They have completely, uh, it's, it's, it's been, well, as many words in our language have been wrecked, start mm. with love, certainly, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's right. for sure, for sure. Mm. Uh, and which is why I, I like what Ramdas did uh, regarding loving awareness, which mm -hmm. all you, uh, you guys and your teachers picked up on. I see, you know, Jack and Trudy are Jack, using it all the yeah, time now. Lot. Mm -hmm. say, hey, that's Ramdas's copyright. Um, <laughs> so, but I like that because that combination, it's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Loving awareness. And uh, as I said before, I think it's a, it's a real perspective thing and not just um, a practice thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, generosity mm. is... Um, to me also, along with kindness, if we're talking mm -hmm. about really making advances, and that's not a good word, but uh, mm -hmm. becoming more of who you truly are, we're talking mm. about generosity. And it's a, it's a practice, too, that allows us to get out of that mini-me place, the movie of me. As soon yeah. as you start to reach out to somebody else, you absolutely lose that meaningness yeah and yeah. it's such an important practice uh, that's right and it's not a practice it's just something that you we naturally do because it's in front of us and we're pulled to do it and yeah so generosity please right a little word on that yeah, we both would probably have a take on generosity. It's, it's one of those paradoxes, I think, that it can be a practice, mm -hmm. you know, that sometimes it's not natural, that for whatever reason, the way we've been raised or our conditioning is to focus on what we don't have. So a kind of scarcity mentality or this sense of what can I get? What do I need? Yeah. And it can be a kind of training a muscle to come into a situation with that sense of abundance and mm -hmm. open heartedness. And actually, what can I offer that I have plenty here to give? And actually, when we take that mental stance, we're so much happier, <laughs> but we might not know that right away. You know, there's a kind of a fear that comes often anxiety or this push of like, but if I give this away, I won't have it anymore. So for me, definitely, it's a training. It's an ongoing reorientation. Like, oh, no, actually, I can come with this attitude, regardless of what I have, or what I'm giving away, or what I don't have. It's really more of a stance, like a posture mm -hmm. that's like, oh, I'm actually happier when I come from this place of what can I give instead of what can I get. Mm. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe I'll just tell a quick story yeah. about this. Devin tells a couple of really wonderful stories about generosity in the book. But one story, this was a, one of these uh, touchstone moments for me. A few years ago, Devin and I were flying. We were actually flying to Europe um, to do some kind of teaching. And I was on the plane next to a woman who she, something about her felt like she was sad to me. 
you know, I couldn't really quite place it, but I had this sense of heaviness next to me. And so I started just talking to her, asking her, you know, where are you from? Where are you going? She was going to a funeral. And she was going to the funeral, funeral of her friend's child mm. who had died in a, in a really sad way. And we were talking and um, then we stopped for a little while. And I looked down and I, you know, I had this, this like you're wearing a wrist mala right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I had one on my wrist. And it was one that I had bought at a very special time in my life. And then I had done a lot of mantra practice with this mala, you know, in my hand. And it was kind of like part of me. And I thought, I'm going to give her this mala. And then my exact next thought was, no, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) A, because I like this mala and it's a part of me. But B, more importantly, the block was she won't get it. It will be awkward. And then I remembered a teaching from our dear mentor, Joseph Goldstein. If you have a generous thought, just do it. And so I took off the mala and I told her about it. You know, I told her about where I'd bought it and how it'd been important to me and that I wanted her to have it. Mm. And unsurprisingly, she did get it. Mm. And she put it on and she said, thank you. And I'm going to wear this uh, to the funeral and I'll think of all of the meditation that has gone into this mala as I go to this funeral. Next day, I woke up, no mala. And I had this pang of like, (laughs) oh, it's gone. Uh, Immediately followed by this joy of like, because this woman has it. And from then on, it, it was, you know, more joy joy whenever I think about it it's joy but it was a very defining experience for me because this is the humanness you know there's the I want to give but I I'm scared on some level to give but then what if we just do what if we just do give it very often though certainly not always it becomes a part of who we are in a positive way and it like uplifts us okay I got another story that Beats anything that you can think of, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting in front of Neem Karoli Baba. Somebody had gone and made all these stamps of his picture, a picture on stamps, and there were sheets and sheets of them. And we'd go hang with him, and he'd say, "Where's those stamps?" And he'd, you'd think he'd give every person around one stamp. He'd get, take the whole sheet and give it to the biggest schmuck you thought was there or something in your head. And so one day he, I had some stamps and he was right up uh, maybe 30 feet. Anybody got stamps? The translator said. And I, I looked in my bag and I took out, the, but I only had 20 stamps or something. So I, I ripped it in half. It's not like, yes, this being knew everything. <laughs> he was, it was right in front of him. This was no magic uh, trick. And I came up and I gave him half. He looked at me like I had just given him a bomb that was going to go off. <laughs> he had a pickle, you know, that he, and he threw it at me, you know. No, get out of here. you! <laughs> and he had a mouth too, Maharaj. <laughs> um, so, of course, I was devastated. Uh, how, what did I do? I'm, Jesus. Talk about the lack of generosity. And... Uh, a week later, I had some more of these. I had the stamps that, that he threw back at me, and it came up again. Anybody got any stamps? I took everything I had. I mean, I just kept here, take it. And he just, he looked back at me and he went, <laughs> wake up. <laughs> Fortunate to have that kind of a thing, uh, mm, you know, that yeah, kind of an experience. Kick in the pants. <laughs> yeah, we really. Do. 23, four, four years old, whatever it was. Oh, thank you, guys. Oh, I must. Oh, there's one little thing I had to just uh, finish with that I love in the book. It's at the end of the book. I don't know pre- precisely exactly what to do, but I do know who I am. I know what matters to me, and what matters to me is kindness, compassion, real friendship, doing good for others, contributing, taking care of myself, taking care of everyone I meet, and deeply knowing my experience in each moment of the day. This is our prescription. 
and that's why this How Not to Be a Hot Mess, great, great little book, you guys, really great. And I'm so happy to meet you. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, let's do something else another time because uh, yeah, great. this has been fun, real fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, totally fun. Really great. All right, everybody, we'll be back next week. Mind Rolling, BeHereNowNetwork.com, and you can uh, experience some of the beautiful uh, podcasts by the teachers we're taught, Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, and Joseph Goldstein, mm -hmm. and many more, Ram Das, Krishna Das. There's a whole slew of people that uh, um, it's like a big bowl of fruit. It's so <laughs> nourishing. <laughs> we're honored to be in that bowl. Uh, yeah. Thank you for being here Great. again, everyone. We'll uh, we'll see you next week. Namaste. Yeah. Namaste. Thank you.